Our scripture this morning comes from Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verses 4 through 26. Listen to God's word. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted them in all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me, and whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil that I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and a striving after the wind. And there was nothing to be gained under the sun. So I turned to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. And then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I perceived that the same event happens to all of them. And then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. For of the wise as of the fool there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. So I hated life. Because what is done under the sun was grievous to me, for all this is vanity and striving after the wind. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me, and who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. Yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also was vanity, so I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. Because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow and his work is a vexation. Even in the night, his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also, I saw, is from the hand of God, for apart from him who can eat or who can have enjoyment. For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy, but to the sinner he has given the business of gathering and collecting, only to give to the one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after the wind. We're doing a series this summer called Public Faith following the work done by Tim Keller at Redeemer in New York City about five years ago. And I titled this sermon, LOL, Nothing Matters. And maybe the title is the best part of the sermon, only time will tell. But uh, I titled it, LOL, Nothing Matters, because it seems that we are such at such a cultural moment where we are experiencing a crisis of meaning. And it feels as though we're coming apart in many ways, losing a sense of common 
purpose, common values, common narrative, common sources of authority, etc. And there's this increasing feeling of helplessness that we can do anything about it, right? We're, we're, we're coming apart. We're, 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 we're polarizing. We can't even talk to each other anymore. And anytime you try to fix it, you only make it worse. So LOL, nothing matters. And so you might as well have a good laugh while the ship is sinking. And so who or what is to blame for this crisis of meaning? One provocative answer comes from a book that's been making the rounds in uh, certain circles these days. I I think even our former President uh, Obama said that this was on his recent reading list. And I've just started reading it. It's it's by the Notre Dame uh, professor named Patrick Deneen. And it's called Why Liberalism Failed. And so Deneen's thesis, which is admittedly controversial, is that our current crisis in the West comes from the success of the liberal project. Liberalism at its heart is about freedom, liberation of the individual from tradition, authority, nature, family, any of the various constraints around pre-modern life. And at the heart of liberalism is the freedom to choose what's best for yourself, including one's own understanding of the meaning of life. And there's no going back, and there's no denying the great benefits that we enjoy because of liberalism's success. But its success also contains the seeds of its failure because, yes, we've been liberated as autonomous individuals. And the fruit of that is now we're feeling more and more alone, more and more disconnected, more and more powerless as individual in the face of these massive global forces of economics and politics that shape our lives. And so this freedom has in many quarters given way to despair. And it's into this despair that our scripture this morning speaks. Reading comes from Ecclesiastes, which is one of the stranger books of the Bible. It speaks with a rather pessimistic voice. The opening words of the speaker of Ecclesiastes is this, vanity of vanity, vanity of vanity, all is vanity. So much for the power of positive thinking, right? And so the voice of this book is the voice one. uh, It says, these are the words of, and the Hebrew word is koheleth, which is this difficult word to translate. It comes from the word to assemble. Some have said the preacher. Some have said the teacher. And still others have said that we we should call this person speaking the professor. And however we translate it, the the opening verses suggest that these words ought to be associated with, with King Solomon. The son of King David, famous for his wisdom and his wealth and being the most successful king in Israel's history. And so the picture here is of him holding court at the end of his life, reflecting on all that he has learned and accomplished and what it means. And his, his conclusion is essentially, his verdict is essentially this, LOL, nothing matters. His is the voice of despair, a voice that speaks powerfully to our own particular moment. And the reason for his despair is this. The professor's reflections aren't on life in general, but on a life lived under the sun. So he says, I thought about everything that I did under the sun. And this phrase, under 
the sun is one of Ecclesiastes' catchphrases. It occurs 28 times in this book, and it occurs nowhere else in the Bible will you see this phrase, under the sun. And so life lived under the sun is a particular understanding of life. It's life lived without reference to God. And in that way, we might say that his experience is not too different from our own. The Canadian philosopher Charles Taylor has written quite powerfully about what it's like to live now in a secular age, which is also the name of his most famous work. And one major theme that dominates Taylor's work is that we've lost contact with what he calls the transcendent frame. In the pre-modern world, you lived in an enchanted universe. You know, God was everywhere, and, you know, there were fairies and spirits, and and so there was an unseen world behind the seen world. But now our entire lives are lived in what he calls an imminent frame. The world has been disenchanted. We no longer believe in those old things. And so we've lost contact with the spiritual, and so that all that's available to us now is life lived under the sun. Life lived purely within the imminent frame. And so Ecclesiastes recounts the professor's search for meaning in a life without reference to God. And his finding is this, that all life lived under the sun is vanity. And the Hebrew word for vanity is the same word for vapor or breath. It's actually the same word where the name Abel comes from, from the story of Cain and Abel. He says, I I looked at life lived under the sun, and it's all vapor. It's all breath. And what he means by that is that everything is without lasting meaning, transcendent meaning, or value. One of the great church fathers said that vanity is like racing your shadow, or shooting arrows at the stars, or, or building castles on the sand, things that are without lasting purpose or point, things that are absurd. And so the professor's point is that he has tried to find meaning in life under the sun, meaning in life apart from God. And he's tried to find it in all the usual ways that we try to find meaning in life apart from God. He's tried it in pursuing pleasure, in pursuing wisdom, and in his work. And none of it could provide the kind of meaning that he craved. All of it was vanity. And what's most interesting isn't just that he says it was vanity, but the reasons he gives for why. And so we're going to look this morning at four different things. One, the vanity of pleasure. Two, the vanity of wisdom. Three, the vanity of work. And lastly, that which gives life meaning. So at the beginning of chapter two, the professor recounts, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. And so not only did the professor pursue pleasure, but he attained it. He was incredibly successful. In verses 9 and 10, he says, So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, and my heart found pleasure in all my toil. And this was my reward for all my toil. So the picture here is of King Solomon, who from the perspective of a life lived under the sun, he was a smashing success. 
he accrued more pleasure for himself than anyone in, in the Bible. He touts his success in, in these public works projects, his, his vast riches in terms of slaves and flocks and precious metals, and he had plenty of, of sexual pleasure to more women than he could count. He had all of that, more than anyone else who came before him. And at the end of the day, his verdict on the meaning of this, his life in pursuit of pleasure was this. And then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity. And it's not just that it was vain, but the reason that it was vain is so important to understand. He says that it was chasing after the wind. A life lived under the sun in pursuit of pleasure is like chasing after the wind. And that's a perfect description of what it's like to pursue meaning in life from pleasure. Because pleasure is just like the wind. You can feel it, but it's fleeting. It's powerful, but you can't grasp it. It just slips through your fingers. And the more you pursue it, the less pleasure you find when you get it. It has diminishing returns. And with pleasure, there's never satisfaction. There's never enough. The pursuit of pleasure leads to emptiness. The saying I've heard is that pleasure is something that ensues, not something to be pursued. Meaning that if you go after pleasure for its own sake, you won't get it. But if you go after something else like truth or goodness or beauty, then pleasure will result from that. But pleasure for pleasure's sake is vanity. It's chasing after the wind. You can never catch it. It can only catch you. And when I read this, I I couldn't help but think of a profile that I recently read about Johnny Depp in Rolling Stone. And it's a depressing tale of a star who seemingly had everything. Fame, fortune, right? Access to anything that he wanted. And how he's on the verge of losing it all. He's, he's a broken man in every sense of the word. Financially, his family, uh, his career, his friendships, all of them are a shambles. And he invited this, this um, Rolling Stone author in to, to give him an interview, to state his case on why the sort of world is conspiring against him. And it, it, it ends this way, the article ends this way, and it's haunting. So this is the author speaking. He says, I want to go home, but feel reluctant to leave. One of the most famous actors in the world is now smoking dope with a writer and his lawyer while his cook makes dinner and his bodyguards watch television. There is no one around him who isn't getting paid. Light begins to seep through the windows. His lawyer goes to sleep. He has an early flight to Switzerland to go cross-country skiing with a Russian oligarch. I see this as an opening to leave. Depp looks for a security guard to call me a cab, but his knocking goes unanswered. So he walks me out. Thanks for coming, says Depp. This could be your Pulitzer. For the next 15 minutes, Depp tries to figure out how to open the gates to his mansion fortress. He clicks buttons and pushes the fence, but nothing budges. He is a lost boy who can't find his way home before dark. I finally tell him I can shimmy over the fence. I clamber over and jump down. Through the bars, we say goodnight. Take care, man, he says. He goes silent for a moment. Thank you for listening. He then turns around and walks back into his gilded prison and pushes open the heavy door. 
after a moment, it slams shut behind him. Vanity, vanity. All is vanity. So the professor tried to find meaning in pleasure, and it didn't work. And so next, he turned to wisdom. He says, so I, can t- I turned to consider wisdom and madness and folly. And Solomon, if he's famous for anything, if you're familiar with the Bible, is for his wisdom. That's the one thing that he asked God for. So since this is still the life lived under the sun, we can think of this as his philosophical search for meaning in life apart from God. And it's not a total loss. He can see that, that living as a wise person is better than living as a foolish person. But ultimately, this too is vanity. He says in verse 14, And yet I perceived that the same event happens to all of them. And then I said in my heart, What happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. The wise person and the foolish person both meet the same fate. Both of them will die and be forgotten. The professor would agree with the French existentialists like Albert Camus, who saw that existence itself was ultimately meaningless. And their reasoning was this, that if the way you got here is meaningless the result of basically random chance in a blind and purposeless universe just so happened that some fish had a a fin that could turn to legs and then a bajillion other things happened and here you are. Blind luck. And so if you got here is just the result of blind luck and we know that, you know, when few billion years when the sun uh, dies out and expands and consumes the earth and all of this is going to be gone and forgotten, human civilization wiped out if it isn't already. So our destiny is nothingness. We came from nothingness. We're going to nothingness. And so people like Camus, Camus say it's time to just own up and face the fact that you're nothingness, that your life is meaningless. There's no ultimate purpose. And those who are pure materialists have said, well, that's not such bad news. It's better to know the truth than to live a lie. And so it's up to you to make life meaningful. Life is only as meaningful as you make it. And there's an aspect of that that sounds good, right? We've all got to make a decision to make our lives meaningful. But I suppose it's true, but, you know, whereas I might find meaning in, in raising backyard chickens, for example. That's where I find meaning and purpose in my life. I find value and meaning in caring for them and having them grow. But on the other hand, someone else might find meaning in torturing them. And so in life lived under the sun, that's just a matter of personal preference. There's ultimately no difference between the two. And so pleasure can't provide meaning, but neither can wisdom. And lastly, the professor turns to one final place for meaning, a place for where many of us look for meaning in our lives, and that is work. As Americans, we work more than any other country in the developed world. And, and, you know, why do you get up in the morning? That's not a super deep philosophical question for most of us. It's, well, I got to go to work. That's why I get up. Work gives us something to do. It gives us some sense of purpose in our life, direction. 
But the professor says, well, I looked at the work. I looked at everything that I did, everything that I built, all that I did, dedicated years and years of my life to. And that's vanity too because eventually I've got to stop working. And I've got to hand on what I did to someone else who didn't work it. And in fact, they didn't build it. And in all likelihood, they're going to destroy it. And we know this, that each and every generation, our civilization is threatened with the prospect of being overrun by barbarians. And we call them children. All of our institutions get passed into their hands. And God only knows what they will do with them. I think of every important institution and how it started and how it's changed from what it started with and what would the founders think. Uh, This one just popped in my head, but I think of the YMCA, right? It started as the Young Men's Christian Association. And these were these, you know, muscular Christianity of the Brits, and uh, all of these single men were moving into these huge cities because of industrialization. And so this was a place that was going to provide them with physical exertion and inculcate these strong Christian values to them, you know, spiritual and physical health going hand in hand. And think of how successful the Y is. The Y is everywhere in our country, but it's everywhere across the world. And I love the Y. It's a great place to work out. It still does a lot of good. There's, you know, still talk of values and, and stuff like that. And, but I just think of what would the founders think of where they started it and what they saw it as and what it became. And maybe what it is now is better than what it was. But you think of those folks starting it and, and, and what it's become, and I wonder, would they recognize it and would they be pleased with it? And I think the professor knows the answer. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. Because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and great evil. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart which he toils, with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow, and his work is a vexation. Even in the night, his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. Work is vanity because whatever you build, you hand on to the next generation to destroy. And so for the, press, the professor has tried to find meaning in life and pleasure and in wisdom and in work, and he's found that they're ultimately all meaningless. And without meaning, life is unbearable. That's what we learn from uh, Viktor Frankl in his classic Man's Search for Meaning, which are his reflections as a psychiatrist on his three years that he lived in a concentration camp. And I read this book again this week for the first time since I was a freshman in high school. And I think of, God bless our high school English teachers who introduce us to this great literature, these Cretans who cannot appreciate anything that's happening. Because this is a profound book, and I can't imagine what 14-year-old me thought as I was reading Viktor Frankl. But his contention is, is that the only way that anyone survived the camps without becoming a zombie or, or becoming completely wicked was to find meaning, even in the midst of that hell. It was to find a meaning that the camp couldn't take away, which meant that it wasn't based on anything, if we were to put it in Ecclesiastes words, it wasn't based on anything under the sun. And he quotes Nietzsche approvingly, who said, a man with a why can bear almost any how. So what is it that we have to offer our society that can deal with the crisis of meaningless? 
the crisis that's expressed in a thousand different ways, but, but seen especially in the increasing number of the so-called deaths of despair. Folks in their late, early and late middle ages who are increasingly dying from suicide, opioids, and alcohol. We have to offer a meaning for life that isn't just under the sun, but life that's beyond the sun. And please pardon this very cheesy pun, but I'm going to go there anyway. Life lived in the sun. S-O-N. Of course. True meaning is found in what we see in verses, in verses 24 to 26. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or drink or have enjoyment? For the one who pleases God, uh, for the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. And so life lived beyond the sun, in the sun, is life lived in faith in a God who no matter what befalls us, loves us, and holds us in his hand. That life has meaning and can find joy because that life sees every aspect of existence as graced. Grace is what gives life meaning. Grace meaning God's undeserved, unmerited favor towards us. And when we see that, that, that existence is graced, we'll see that life itself is a gift, that our daily bread is a gift, that our work is a gift. And finding simple joy in everyday life is a gift of grace. And beyond that, what this passage points us to is that even our suffering and sacrifice can be a gift, a manifestation of grace. The cross is the witness to the fact that grace comes in the midst of the suffering of existence. And even that which seems most meaningless, the death of Jesus, right, this amazing life wasted, snuffed out on the cross, that that is the very moment of infinite meaning. That God has not abandoned us to vanity but has borne the vanity and emptiness of life lived under the sun without God in himself. Dying a God-forsaken death so that we could know, despite appearances to the contrary, that God has not forsaken us. And in a world where it seems that nothing matters, what we have to offer and what the world desperately needs is the hope of the cross, which is the hope of grace in a world drowning in an ocean of despair. I close with these words from Frankel. He said, And later let me recall that which was perhaps the deepest experience I had in the concentration camp. The odds of surviving the camp were no more than 1 in 28, as can easily be verified by exact statistics. It did not even seem possible, let alone probable, that the manuscript of my first book, so that was kind of what kept him going, was he had this book that he wanted to publish as a psychiatrist, so he hid it away, and he thought, if I can survive and publish this, that will give my life meaning. And so he brought that with him. He smuggled that with him on the train. And he so, so he said, it didn't seem possible, let alone probable, that the manuscript of my first book, which I had hidden in my coat when I arrived at Auschwitz, would ever be rescued. Thus, I had to undergo and overcome the loss of my mental child, and now it seemed as if nothing and no one would survive me, neither a physical nor a mental child of my own. So I found myself confronted with the question whether under such circumstances my life was ultimately void of any meaning. 
This was the case when I had to surrender my clothes and in turn inherited the worn-out rags of an inmate who had already been sent to the gas chamber immediately after his arrival at the Auschwitz railway station. Instead of the many pages of my manuscript, I found in a pocket of the newly acquired coat one single page torn out of a Hebrew prayer book containing the most important Jewish prayer, Shema Yisrael, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. How should I have interpreted such a coincidence other than as a challenge to live my thoughts instead of merely putting them on paper? A bit later, I remember it seemed to me that I would die in the near future. In this critical situation, however, my concern was different from that of most of my comrades. Their question was, will we survive the camp? For if not, all this suffering has no meaning. The question which beset me was, has all this suffering, this dying around us, a meaning? For if not, then ultimately there is no meaning to survival. For a life whose meaning depends upon such a happenstance as whether one escapes or not, ultimately would not be worth living at all. There is no meaning to life under the sun. But we're called to look to the cross and find meaning in the sun. And we bear that faith, that hope, that grace with us in public. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Please pray with me. Lord God,